Welcome to the Clinical Education Initiative podcast, Conversations with CEI, where we feature conversations with clinical experts, their experience and insights on current health issues in the areas of HIV, primary care and prevention, sexual health, hepatitis C, and drug user health. Welcome to Conversations with CEI. I'm Melinda Godfrey, and I'll be your host today. I'm a nurse practitioner at the University of Rochester, and I'm also the program manager of the Congenital Syphilis Prevention Project, which is a part of the New York State CEI Sexual Health Center of Excellence, a clinical training center for New York State clinicians. Today, we're going to talk about the history of congenital syphilis. And here to share this history with us is Dr. Jeffrey Weinberg. He is a professor of pediatrics at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry. He is the clinical director of the Pediatric Infectious Diseases in Pediatric HIV program. He is the co-attending of the Pediatric Primary Immune Deficiency Disorders Clinic at the U of R Medicine, Galisano Children's Hospital and is also a consultant to the New York State Department of Health AIDS Institute. I'm very happy to be able to share this time with you, Dr. Weinberg, to dive into the history of congenital syphilis. So let's get started. To start off, Dr. Weinberg, can you share with us just a brief historical look at congenital syphilis? Yeah, thank you. Congenital syphilis and syphilis in general is really an ancient disease that, particularly for children, is quite a plague for infants and children because it can cause miscarriage, stillbirths, early infant deaths, and if a child's untreated, really lifelong physical and neurologic problems. So I want to say thanks for having us talk about this important disease. It's interesting. The history of syphilis is like reading the history of medicine. There, People argue about whether syphilis came from the New World and went back to Europe on Columbus's ships and with his sailors, or whether it was already in the Old World, so to speak, in Europe and Sub-Saharan Africa already, and it came backwards and invaded here. There are all sorts of arguments, but And they're not really scientifically answerable right now. But what we see is that in the late 1490s to early 1500s, there was a major epidemic of what people at the time called the great pox, which seemed to be different than smallpox and is probably, as far as we can tell, is syphilis. So all the way back 600 years ago, And yet it was a little bit different than today's syphilis. It seemed to be very acute, even lethal at times. And for several hundred years thereafter, it wasn't very easy for people to separate syphilis out from gonorrhea or even know that it was a sexually transmitted infection. But by the early 1900s, the the pathogens, the treponemes that cause syphilis were differentiated from the bacteria that cause gonorrhea. And the early serologic tests for syphilis were actually the earliest was discovered and invented in 1906 by Wasserman. This was sort of the ancient RPR test that we know of today. And by 1910, Paul Ehrlich made his famous Salversan 606 injectable medicine. And so really the history of syphilis in the last 200 years is one of gigantic advances. 
from diagnosis all the way up into the 40s when we got penicillin. And so since penicillin, we've thought we had controlled syphilis, but we see in many shapes or forms that it's on the way back. And that's why I think it's still important to talk about today. Dr. Weinberg, when was it first noticed that it was transmissible to neonates? That's a good question. I believe in the 1800s, people realized it was transmissible. The problem was they didn't always understand whether it was being transmitted through the uterus, through breastfeeding, or through air, and you know all sorts of things that we don't believe now. But I think certainly by the 1900s, it was observed and believed that it was transmitting from moms who had syphilis who weren't treated because there were not very good treatments at the time into their babies. What are some of the signs and symptoms that clinicians don't see with newborn babies? Congenital syphilis is an interesting sort of uh, chapter in syphilis in terms of diagnosing syphilis in medicine. So many of us as physicians, as nurses, as healthcare workers are trained to concentrate on syphilis in adults by thinking about chankers or the signs and symptoms of primary syphilis. And then we realize that secondary syphilis in adults with rashes or liver problems or kidney problems or just silent problems, we realize that happens in adults. And we forget that in babies, because they get the syphilis infection, presumably through the placenta from the time when the mom is having syphilis distributed through her bloodstream, congenital syphilis in an infant is almost like more like secondary or latent syphilis in an adult. That is, we never see chancres. So you don't expect to see chancres or syphilitic ulcers in a baby. In fact, the most common thing to see is a perfectly healthy looking baby, and yet it's a cryptic infection that must be treated. So that's one big difficulty with congenital syphilis is that many of the babies are completely asymptomatic early on. Now, they'll get sick if we miss the infection, but who wants to have that? Nobody wants to have that. So in the nursery, the things that you might see in the minority of kids who have symptoms are firstly just generalized things like on exam, a big liver or a big spleen. So hepatomegaly and splenomegaly or rashes are well described, but not very common. These are things that can look like the rash of a secondary syphilis in an adult, just various erythematous patches. But you can also have mucus patches in the mouth of the baby. There's a peculiar runny nose or rhinitis. The old term for that is snuffles, actually. And snuffles is a seropurulent rhinitis that happens even in the first week or so of infancy. And that's very unusual otherwise for children to have such discharge from their nose. And less common, but it happens sometimes that you see flat warts or condylomatolata, jaundice, those types of things on physical exam. If in terms of laboratory exams of congenital syphilis, the most common thing up to 70% of kids by the time they're several weeks after their initial infection from mom is osteochondritis or periostitis. This is by x-rays. So in long bone films, the cartilage, the metaphyses of the bones are look like there's holes in them or they're osteopenic. Various 
blood abnormalities, most commonly is thrombocytopenia or low platelets, but also anemia or low red blood cells. And then finally, direct hyperbilirubinemia or elevation of the liver tests can be seen in children with early congenital syphilis. I might just add that when I say early congenital syphilis, this is actually a, a definition of syphilis under two years of age. We're really talking about infants here. But when you talk about early syphilis versus late syphilis, the late congenital syphilis, meaning those kids who have already aged two years, that's when you see things you might have heard of in training, dental abnormalities, abnormal teeth, abnormal eyes, uh, keratitis, the irritation of the outside of the eye, sensory neural deafness, skeletal abnormalities, brain abnormalities. If you've seen those, you've gone several years and you still should treat the child, but that's a disaster that should have been prevented. With the history of syphilis, what do you see with the influence of drug use with syphilis and HIV, like in the 1980s and the 1990s with crack cocaine? Yeah, that's a good question. So we talked about syphilis up through the discovery of penicillin, which in the 1940s, when it came out, we thought was going to eliminate syphilis from the planet and everybody would be fine. But of course, it's a great drug, but it didn't eliminate syphilis. And although we got to our lowest levels of adult syphilis and congenital syphilis that we had ever seen in this country by by the mid-80s to 90s, we started to see higher rates return. And whenever higher rates of syphilis return in the young population of childbearing age, then you start to see syphilis come into babies. So in the late 1980s, we had combination of the onset of HIV infection, various social disruptions, an epidemic in this country of crack cocaine use, a decrease in public health funding because we naively thought, oh yeah, we've cleared all the infections out of the country and why do we need to continue surveillance? So lots of things came together. And in the late 1980s, early 1990s, there was an alarming return of higher rates of syphilis, both in adults and and therefore in babies. By the year 2000, we as a country had come to the lowest rate of congenital syphilis that we had seen since the 40s, since penicillin came out. And unfortunately, in I guess mid-2010s, late 2010s, early 20s, Now we're seeing a very big increase in congenital syphilis again. Those trends have been reversed. And this time, I think it's hard to know exactly why we're seeing not so much crack cocaine. Now we're seeing methamphetamine, which has increased over the past 10 to 15 years. And when people are put into a situation where they may be selling sex for drugs, that can put them at risk for being infected with syphilis and transmitting it to babies. Lack or inadequate prenatal care, lack of health care, all those things have sort of combined to make syphilis more common again. This is quite worrisome. I'll just give you some numbers to back this up. We've seen syphilis rates in babies are going up about by 25 to 50% each year. If you look at the year 2000, Uh, 21 compared to the year 2000, it's up several hundred percent. 
So we were having about 500 cases a year in the year 2000 of congenital syphilis. And in 2021, there were almost 2,700 cases. I think, unfortunately, the combination of substance use disorders, of lack of prenatal care, of lack of difficulty getting into health care has all combined to lead to more syphilis. The last thing is so many of us trained when syphilis was on the decrease and when we never saw it, that we forgot about it or didn't learn about it very comprehensively. And so many doctors and nurses of today have never seen a child with syphilis and have difficulty recognizing an adult with syphilis. So not only do we have to work on better prenatal care, better attachment to the healthcare system, better insurance and all those things, but we also have to re-educate ourselves constantly into diseases which we thought were gone, but that are that will come back if we just ignore them. It sounds like we need to keep it on our radar all the time. It's hard because this is an infection, which again, doesn't always appear with outward clinical signs in a baby. When it's not outwardly visible, people tend to forget about it. Same with actually a pregnant person. If it's not visible, people tend to forget about it. So we really have to work extra hard to do screening and to remember. That is a perfect segue into my next question, which is what can clinicians do to help address this? What are the guidelines right now with testing pregnant people? So the first thing I think we as clinicians can do is test, test, test. And so I'd even back up. I would say non-pregnant people need to be tested too. I know that's not our focus today, but non-pregnant young people, their partners, especially based on the prevalence in your local area, perhaps, but really everybody in the country should, should have more frequent syphilis testing than we used to do in yesteryear, which was once if ever. I think this is much more akin to HIV testing. It really shouldn't be a big deal in terms of stigma or in terms of obstacles such as consent and things like that. I think young people who are sexually active or at risk need to be tested for syphilis and HIV frequently. It's hard to define what frequency that is, but I think it's important because where do people who are pregnant get syphilis? Well, they get it from other people. And so I would first say, let's test everybody if they're at risk. Then when we get down to people who are pregnant, for many years, I think every state in the country, most likely, and certainly New York State and New York City, have it in the law books that on entry to care in pregnancy, the pregnant person should be tested for syphilis. What's changed is that we've encouraged people to test more often than just that one time in entry to care. So I'll back up a second. In New York State, up until quite recently, in New York City metro area, the law and the regulations of healthcare said that a pregnant person was tested early in their pregnancy and began at the birth of the child as sort of a safety net to make sure that, that syphilis hadn't come up. The problem with that second safety net approach is that nine months is a long time to be pregnant and you may get syphilis in between. And if the testing is missed or not done at birth, then that's a, a child who may be at great risk of having a, a debilitating disease. So the recent guidelines really are to test pregnant people when they come into care, 
a second time at about 28 to 32 or so weeks of gestation so that you can make sure they're still healthy and not have not acquired syphilis at a time where you can still treat them and treat the the fetus as well and then do the third test at delivery this has been a recommendation of the federal government for a bit of time that there should be a second test but a recommendation based on an assumed risk of either prevalence in the area or risk factors for the patient. And honestly, it's really difficult for clinicians to assign risk. And in fact, sometimes assignment of risk is wrapped up in stigma and is stigmatizing. And so many of us realize that it's better to test everybody rather than trying to outguess somebody's risk. It's diverse, equitable, and inclusive if we just test everybody rather than saying, oh, this person's at risk, this person probably isn't at risk. This has now been made a New York City regulation that every pregnant person shall be tested for syphilis at entry to care at 28 to 32 weeks of gestation and upon the birth of the baby. I would advise everybody in the state, whether it's regulation or not, to go ahead and start trying to do a three-test regimen because that's really the best for mom's health and it's best for the baby's health. Wearing my other hat of a pediatric HIV specialist, I'm heavily advocating that people are tested for HIV early in pregnancy and later in pregnancy as well, for exactly the same reasons, because we can help moms be healthier and we can prevent disease in babies by realizing what infections they're being exposed to. I think this will be the the wave of the future to try and have early and late gestational testing. We'll still continue the birth testing, I think, because we realize that there are moms with challenges who haven't been in prenatal care, and you still want to afford them and their babies a chance to be as well treated as everybody else, even if they haven't been able to get into prenatal care. Once the baby is born, how do you determine the treatment and what is the follow-up of the newborn? Those are difficult questions, too, where we have to continually re-educate ourselves. Although cord blood testing has been a tradition in many hospitals across the state and across the country, we're finding out over the past number of years that cord blood isn't such a good idea. It leads to false positive and false negative syphilis testing. So when we talk about the testing at birth for a baby, first I want to know mom's actual blood, not the blood that's in her cord, or the baby's actual blood, or both. Let's say a mom has a positive syphilis test in her blood. What? How do we evaluate the baby? Well, we want to take the baby's blood not blood from the cord, but the baby's actual venous blood, and test it for syphilis antibodies, treponemal antibodies, and more importantly, an RPR antibody test. We need to do a physical exam and see if there are any of the signs I talked about before. And you also want to carefully examine the history of mom and her treatment. This is where communication with the local public health department can be very helpful. The first thing I do when I am called to see a baby with syphilis is actually try and get an idea of the history. What was mom treated with? When was she treated? Was she treated at all? 
Then I'm looking at what her blood titers are from the syphilis tests and what the baby's blood syphilis tests are. Then the next would be the exam of the baby. Then depending on those, the CDC suggested boxes that you can put the diagnosis into. Is this likely to be syphilis? Probably likely, but less so. Unlikely to be syphilis or, hey, mom was treated three months ago. Her titers have dropped. She has a monogamous relationship with no possible extra syphilis exposure. Her partner's negative. And so it's very unlikely to be syphilis in the baby. Sometimes you can't tell. And so we completely evaluate the baby by doing a lumbar puncture, by doing blood tests, looking for low platelets, looking for low white blood cells, looking for unexpected jaundice. And then we make the final determination based on history of that maternal treatment, all the blood titers, the lab tests, the exam. And then that leads you to either definite syphilis, probable syphilis, possible syphilis, or unlikely to be syphilis. And then that drives our treatment decisions. It sounds all very crisp and easy to do, but when it's in real time, sometimes it's hard because, as I said, you may not have the information about mom at your fingertips. Her titers may not have dropped, even if she was completely well-treated. Babies sometimes are small for gestational age for reasons other than syphilis. Sometimes you do a lumbar puncture and it's difficult to obtain and there's some blood cells in there. So it looks abnormal, but you have to try and differentiate that from actual syphilis and neurosyphilis invasion. So treatment decisions are sometimes complex, but if we think there's probable or definite syphilis, we will give that baby 10 days of intravenous penicillin. If it's unlikely that the child has syphilis, we can't come to agreement on all the perfect indicators. Or if we're just concerned that it's an uninterpretable lab test or it's right down the middle, I frequently give benzathine penicillin to babies because that will also give them a prolonged penicillin treatment. This doesn't sound complex enough. But the last part in answering your good question is, what do we do with the baby after all of this? Do we just say goodbye and good luck or do we need to follow them? And of course, we need to follow them. We do that by following the RPR titers in the baby. So when the baby is about two months of age, when they're coming in for their routine immunizations at two months, four months, six months, we generally suggest doing PR titers. For those babies who have an RPR titer that's detectable at birth, you need to follow that child RPR titers to make sure they go negative. That's especially true in babies we've treated, but it's even true in babies we haven't treated or have just treated with benzathine penicillin. Because we want to know that mom's antibody has been processed and catabolized and excreted in the way that it normally is, and that baby's not forming their own antibody as if they were truly infected. And we do that by watching the RPR go to non-detectable. For those babies who are, in order to get the RPR, you might also be getting phenemal antibodies, the syphilis, the chemiluminescent assay, the TPPA, those types of antibodies. 
those treponemal tests can stay positive for up to a year, even in non-infected, uninfected babies. That's because it's just, it has to do with how much antibody comes across the placenta and how good we are at detecting it. So I do not insist that babies continue to get blood tested until all their antibodies go away. In this particular situation, I just want to see that the RPR has gone away and gone to negative. Thank you very much for that information, Dr. Weinberg. I really appreciate you making the time to come on to our conversations with CEI today. And I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Join us next time for a new episode of Conversations with CEI. Visit us at ceitraining.org and follow us on CEI social media platforms.